Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burr. Today, a month after the blockade at Parliament Hill in Ottawa came to an end, we speak to investigative reporter Justin Ling about his work figuring out whether the protests were about vaccine mandates or something more sinister. What to expect now that previously disparate groups joined parses over the month of February. We head to Kyiv to speak to a prominent human rights lawyer about Russia's continued attacks on civilians in Ukraine and what she wants to see emerge as NATO and G7 leaders meet in Brussels later this week. But first, a work stoppage slammed the brakes on CP Rail's network early Sunday morning. A large cross-section of Canadian businesses from agriculture to manufacturing and mining suddenly find themselves with no good way to move their merchandise. And that has multiple industry groups calling on Ottawa to impose back-to-work legislation. But what impact will it have if the trains don't start to roll again anytime soon? It's already proving to be a difficult season for a large cross-section of Canadian businesses, from agriculture to manufacturing to mining, who woke up this morning to day two of finding themselves with no way of moving merchandise, either to receive it or to send it out. There are loud calls tonight for Ottawa to impose back-to-work legislation after CP rail trains came to a stop because of a work stoppage uh, that took place or went into effect early Sunday morning. Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan says negotiations between CP and the Teamsters Rail Conference Union, which represents about 3,000 train engineers, conductors and yard workers, continues with the help of a federal mediator. The dispute is over wages and pensions. The minister signaled so far he's not prepared to introduce a law that would end the work stoppage, although there's been a lot of calls for that already, given stretched supply lines and such. The minister faced a grilling during question period today from Conservative MP Marilyn Gladu. What will the government do to immediately address this situation? Canada's supply chains are still reeling from the B.C. floods from COVID-19 and now a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Canada, Canadians' best interests need to be prioritized. I am here in Calgary. I am urging the parties to reach an agreement. Our government is committed to ensuring the reliability and the efficacy of our supply chains that support Canada's economy right across all sectors. The problem is, for the time being, that was Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan, is there is no replacement for a freight train for many people out there. Given a rail car's large capacity, CP has a lot of exclusive access to some areas. So it means farmers, factories and consumers could face more disruptions, as the minister was talking about, in a supply chain already stretched thin and with inflation already at its highest in decades. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Barry Prentice, Professor of Supply Chain Management and former director of the Transport Institute at the University of Manitoba. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Oh, my pleasure. I, I know I was talking to someone on Friday, and, and the idea was this wasn't going to happen because it was just the timing was so awful that it couldn't happen. <laughs> were, were you surprised that it did? Actually, you know, I, I wasn't that surprised that it happened. I mean, I know that the... Uh, the railway had said they were ready to go to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, binding arbitration. The union didn't want to go to that. But, you know, the reality is that uh, if this does go on, uh, the past history has been that the government has forced everybody back to work. I can't remember the last time a, a rail uh, issue like this was settled uh, that went on strike that didn't have that result. So I suspect they probably were going along and saying, okay, this is the way it's going to work. <laughs> The timing, though, uh, clearly we've heard it from everyone. The timing couldn't possibly be worse given all the different supply chain pressures that so many are already facing. Oh, absolutely right. I mean, the uh, the, the railways are still, I don't know how much recovering, but I, I was watching some of the data and 
the, the amount of traffic they've been moving has down this year from last year. And I suspect that's a lot to do with the floods uh, that we had in BC uh, in the fall. And also, of course, uh, just uh, the harsh winter we had out here, very hard for the trains to move. So uh, on top of that, of course, just we have had congestion and, and problems in the ports. So there's lots of uh, problems in the supply chain, and, and this just adds to them. So what will the impact be uh, in the short term? I mean, we're day on day two. It looks like we're going to go to day three. Uh, where do you see the impact early on? Well, early on, uh, probably not too much. I mean, if you think about it, the the railways uh, move large volumes of products, sulfur, potash, uh, uh, metal minerals, uh, grains, and, of course, containers uh, and oil. Uh, and a lot of those things have buffer stocks. So, you know, they've got a, enough. In fact, the cattlemen were saying they've got two weeks of feed. Well, that's, that's not very much when you've got hungry cattle to feed, but you've still got two weeks. So if this ends within a week or so, things can come back to normal. I mean, it'll, it'll take a while to unwind because the, the freight is just still keeps coming and you have to fit that in with the other traffic you've already got. But it can, you know, be done without too much hiccups. But if it goes much beyond a week or 10 days, then I think it's a real problem. Yeah, how might that manifest itself if it starts to go? I mean, obviously the pressure's on. The minister's in Calgary where the two sides are ostensibly meeting. There's pressure from government, from opposition to do something. There's certainly pressure from prairie premiers to do something. Um, I can't imagine that uh, that this government's going to wait for too long. Uh, no, I can't either. I mean, uh, as you just put it out, I mean, there's pressure from all sides. Uh, the only parties that aren't uh, making an agreement are the, the railway and the union. So uh, I think they'll be under a lot of pressure to come to some conclusion and, and fairly quickly. Uh, they probably don't want to have a legislated uh, back-to-work order either. I mean, there is uh, the risk for the, the union that the government will finally get fed up and say, okay, we're going to make these guys essential workers, and that's it. Uh, they have said publicly that they're not going to do that, they don't want to do that, but you know, under enough... Uh, conditions like this, uh, that's the inevitable outcome, I think. One of the things that we were discussing last week too, following the border blockades, although they were temporary, they were short, was the impact this has on Canada's reputation as an importer of goods, uh, where we've had a few different things happen over the last year or so, where if I was a customer sitting somewhere else in the world waiting for my Canadian goods to show up, I might start to wonder if I shouldn't start looking elsewhere. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is probably the the longer-term damage that this uh, strike has done, even even just having a strike, uh, because it creates uncertainty for people who are looking at our our products, and uh, and the railways are absolutely key to major export industries of those bulk materials that I mentioned earlier. So anything like this, which creates uncertainty, uh, causes the foreign buyers to say, well, you know, if I'm going to take this, I I'll discount the price to look after any risk I have, I have to maybe find supplies someplace else. So it is bad for our reputation and, and it's not good for our producers either. I suppose when it comes to supply chain too, we're seeing other pressures, uh, whether it be the cost of fuel, whether it be, you know, we've talked at length about the lack of truckers. Uh, there really aren't any many, many alternatives at this point either for, for companies who want to even try to rush their stuff to, uh, to port or to market. Uh, that's true, and I'm glad you mentioned that cost of fuel because you know the railways also spend a lot of money on fuel, and so that they already have some cost pressures on them as well as uh, as unions and or the or labor I should say, 
And as a result of that, they're probably trying to keep their costs down because it does affect the traffic that you move. I mean, every time you, the cost goes up a penny or two, there's a, at the margin, there's some shippers that are taken out of the market. So uh, clearly they are going to be trying hard to keep their costs down. Uh, I think there's also, you know, perhaps concern that this could be like a, uh, a wage-settling uh, a marker. You know, uh, the government's probably a bit concerned that if, let's say that the union came in at a much higher than expected wage settlement, well, that might trigger all wage settlements across the country to say, well, we should get that too. Uh, this has happened before in the past. Uh, it happened with the Seaway uh, workers at one time, and it happened once with the post office in the 70s. So these kinds of... Uh, of union settlements that then become a, a pattern uh, is something that they probably want to avoid. So if I'm a consumer in Canada, will we see the impact? And I am a consumer in Canada, obviously. Will we see the impact <laughs> of this uh, at any at any time soon? Well, you're not going to see it in the grocery store right away, that's for sure, because everything's delivered by truck. In the longer term, again, if it's a matter of, of uh, disruption in grain, disruption in uh, livestock production and so on, ultimately those costs will get passed on, but it'll take a long time and you probably aren't going to actually notice that in the, in a grocery store. Uh, I'd say that larger consumers, uh, lumber consumers, for example, for construction projects and so on, uh, if they have to see a higher price of lumber or they have to start trucking lumber because you know, they only get the project done on time, uh, that's when costs can get passed on. But again, it's all really a function of how long does this take to settle. The longer it goes on, obviously, the more costs that, that will be implied. So is essential services declaring the railways an essential service? <laughs> is, that, is that a long-term solution here, do you think? <laughs> well, at least it's a solution. I don't, it, I don't it is know one. if there is any long-term solutions to anything these days, but yeah. it certainly is a solution. And, and we get us around this, but mind you, of course, that may also then they say, well, what about the airlines? You know, because they also are a concentrated transportation industry, and they've been legislated back to work too. So, you know, it's a it's a slippery slope, and that's probably one of the reasons they don't really want to go there. I'm that Barry Prentice. Thank you for your insight. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Well, we're talking tonight about that work stoppage at CP Rail that essentially saw the whole network grind to a halt early yesterday morning. It couldn't have come at a worse time for the country's agricultural sector. Groups are calling for the federal government to use back-to-work legislation to get those trains moving again. The National Cattle Feeders Association chair says that Western Canada's cattle industry is relying on CP Rail for shipments of corn from the U.S. to feed their animals. Some feedlots have only two-week supply of feed remaining. Got the anxiety levels up quite high amongst uh, cattle feeders, um, for sure. Any any uh, further delay, I guess, in 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 it in the supply. Um, you know, we're not looking forward to what what happens when we run out, because um, we don't have a contingency plan. That's James Beckring of the National Cattle Feeders Association. CP Rail's work stoppage could also prevent farmers from getting the fertilizer they need in time for spring seeding. So Saskatchewan's premier today, Scott Moe, is not only calling for back-to-work legislation now, but he wants Ottawa to go one step further. 
given that it's their jurisdiction, go further and, and, and look at what it would take to classify um, rail service in, in, in Canadian communities right across uh, this province and this nation uh, as an essential service, given the importance of that service to uh, our economy, the importance of that service to Saskatchewan people and, and by extension, uh, all Canadians. Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan today. Joining me now is Keith Curry. He's the Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. So, I, I, I mean, we've, this is sort of stating the obvious, but I guess this really couldn't have come at a worse time. No, as, as farmers and ranches across this country are gearing up for uh, what's going to hopefully be a very busy spring season, uh, you know, we're looking at getting those inputs that we need uh, on the farm, and certainly a, a, a rail strike is not helping that, along with the, your farmers across Western Canada in particular that are, are shipping their products, more more specifically the grain, out to ports like Vancouver. Uh, now that, that uh, shipment's been, been halted, so income's not coming in, products for the spring aren't, aren't coming in as well, and, and uh, it's, it's very concerning. I guess there really is no alternative either, right? There, this is it's it's rail or rail or nothing. Yeah, well, it depends on the part of the country you're in, but for the most part, we depend on the rail for those massive, massive volumes of of uh, products being moved. And you know, you look at what happened in BC last fall with the with the devastation of the floods and how the infrastructure was was damaged and how how much of a of a problem that became. Now we have the whole country crippled by a by a rail strike that's really not allowing us to move products of all types, uh, but especially in the agriculture sector, what what we need. But we also have to remember that we have people across uh, parts of rural Canada in particular that rely on things like propane and compressed natural gas or diesel for fuel sources, uh, for homes, for houses, for schools, for uh, other types of buildings, and, and that too is in jeopardy as well. I guess with the war in Ukraine too, another massive grain exporters, of course, Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine specifically in this case, uh, that will also have an impact. I imagine there was some idea that Canada might be able to make up some of that shortfall and it can't if it can't get to market, right? Well, countries around the world are looking at ways that they can support their, their friends in the Ukraine and, and, and the markets they serve. And certainly uh, Canada is its own breadbasket. And, and we were looking at ways that we could help out other countries that relied on the Ukraine. And certainly if we can't get that product moving, um, it, it becomes an issue that, that's ours now. And, and so it's really essential uh, that we look at rail lines, as you just heard Premier Mo talk about, as, as an essential service because uh, we went through the experience a few years ago of the CN strike, which really crippled the country for a number of weeks, uh, causing a lot of economic damage. And, and now we're in the, in the midst of a CP strike, and we hope that uh, it's very short-lived so we don't see the same thing repeat itself. I was going to say, what would you like to see happen? I gather the big cry out has been for the, for the government to, to legislate the end to this. Well, certainly we're, you know, at CFA, we're certainly, uh, you know, in favor of the, the collective bargaining process. But when you look at a service like rail, and really we're, we're talking about two companies in the country that control the whole entire rail system and, and the amount of movement of product, we need to have some kind of process in place that does not result in long-term long -term injury uh, because of a shutdown. So whether that's declaring them an essential service or having uh, having the ability to very quickly legislate them back to work until they and to come up to a, a collective uh, solution to this, uh, we need to have something in, plan, in place so that we don't see these stoppages affecting the entire country the way that, that they potentially could. Are you getting a lot of calls just a bit from people who are anxious about what this might mean for them? 
Oh, certainly. We got we have membership right across the, the country that are very anxious about getting the products that they need on farm. But we also deal with the value chain in agriculture. And I don't think people realize how much uh, value added we put on our products here in, in Canada that go elsewhere, primarily to the States, but around the world. And these products aren't moving either. So we have our, our value chain that's going to be slowed down and potentially stopped uh, because they either can't get the product out or they are bringing some uh, added to, to further process the product, whether it's spices or sugars or something like that. And if they can't get those products in either, then all of a sudden the production stops. So it, it affects more than just the, the primary producer, but ultimately, uh, you know, my constituents are, are the primary producers and that's who we're most concerned about right now. If in fact this is settled, I suppose even a, a short strike or a short work stoppage in this case will mean delays anyway, because the whole process, the whole backlog will have to be worked out as well. Well, not only the backlog, but simply restarting uh, an intensive system like like we have with the rail system in Canada it doesn't just happen with a flip of a switch. It would takes a lot of planning, a lot of coordination, getting people back on the job and understanding what they're able to do and and not do uh, to get it going again. So it's it's not just simply it's over and away we go. It it, it takes it takes time. So the longer this goes on, the longer it'll take before we get uh, some kind of semblance of normal back into the system. So we do need a solution really sooner rather than later. Keith Curry, thank you so much. I think I, I know you're not alone in in those thoughts tonight. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. The sounds ever familiar of the blockade on Parliament Hill. It may not seem like it, but it's been less than two months since that convoy rolled into Ottawa, billed as a protest against vaccine mandates, wound up being a three-week blockade that saw the Prime Minister invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time since it had been brought into into force in the mid-80s to help authorities bring an end to the blockade. Several blockade leaders, several organizers were arrested. They now face strict bail, bail conditions. But what have we learned about those who took part? And what does that tell us about what may lie ahead for what had been a disparate group now brought together during those weeks in Ottawa? And of course, the blockades and border crossings across the country as well. Well, freelance investigative reporter Justin Ling looked into this for a long piece published in the Toronto Star over the weekend called, Was It Really About Vaccine Mandates or Something Darker? The Inside Story of the Convoy Protests. And Justin Ling joins me now. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really interesting. I mean, it, it, I was looking at the date the con the Freedom Convoy started, and it's hard to imagine it was less than two months ago. It feels like it feels like time has gone by very quickly since, with all that's going on elsewhere in the world. But you took a, a look back at uh, at sort of the legacy of that month, and found that for the organizers, that uh, there, there is there is going to be a legacy, or at least a lasting impact of what came together. Uh, on Wellington Street over that period of time. What did you find out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most important takeaway is just the degree to which this was not a sort of spontaneous, natural, organic, grassroots response to a policy decision, right? You know, this is an idea that um, became pretty prevalent maybe even standard uh, in certainly all the communications they were putting out, but I think also in, in a lot of the news coverage is this idea that it was always about the, if not the, the, the mandates, the vaccine mandates for truckers, at the very least vaccine mandates writ large. 
And from the very beginning, I've been kind of pushing this idea that, you know, that is the talking point. That is what they, you know, the, the organizers have wanted to put forward, but that does not necessarily mean it's the case. If you really start scratching at the surface and trying to understand who the organizers were, how they were recruiting people to join the cause, who was showing up in Ottawa, what they really believed. Yeah, for sure, they opposed vaccine mandates. And yeah, for sure, they opposed mask mandates and uh, the the vaccine passport system and lockdown measures and curfews and business closures and so on and so forth. They kind of opposed, in some ways, everything about the pandemic. But they also were motivated by a set of conspiracy theories that really told them that the world is much sort of more nefarious and uh, that, you know, governments and politics in the West are much more controlled by foreign special interests than they really are, right? This is a conspiracy theory that tells them that a group called the World Economic Forum has much, much more sway and influence than anyone uh, truly, you know, anyone in the mainstream truly realizes. And that there's, in fact, an effort afoot to sort of you know, kneecap, um, you know, domestic politics in this country. And that... Uh, uh, the prime minister and his cabinet and the media and the and public health officials, they're all bought and sold by this shadowy cabal based in Switzerland. And that this you know, protest in Ottawa was really the last stand between you know, our democracy, freedom, uh, and uh, tyranny managed by this this, this shadowy group. And it, 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 you know, it sounds outlandish. It sounds almost unbelievable. But, uh, you know, in doing all this work, it became incredibly apparent the degree to which this is the idea that motivated a ton of the organizers. And this is the idea that brought a ton of people out uh, from their communities to go in and in, in, in camp in downtown Ottawa for three weeks. And it really is this idea. That yeah, this is I mean, an illegitimate yeah. government run by. I mean, if you've ever tried to organize an interview with with the with the uh, with the uh, WEF, you would know that they're probably not capable of controlling the world. But but uh, but they're it, barely it, capable of organizing a conference every year. Exactly. So, but this has taken root. I mean, this is something that people believe. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and I, it, again, it sounds incredibly unbelievable, but, you know, go back in time. And this isn't actually, this is just a repackaging of a conspiracy theory that has ensnared millions. Um, you go back to the early 20th century and a group of, um, you know, folks in the, in the czarist court in, in uh, St. Petersburg um, convinced a significant number of people that a shadowy cabal of, of Jewish bankers were in fact um, running things in, in, in Russia. Um, and they, they forged a document called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to convince uh, the country of exactly that. Um, this was a document that later got adopted by uh, Adolf Hitler in, in Mein Kampf. Um, that idea got kind of rebranded and, and recast in the 1960s um, as an anti-communist fervor convincing the world that there was a, a, a internationalist socialist movement um, that uh, was was hell-bent or maybe had already succeeded in, in influencing uh, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s government. Um, you saw it pro- pro- crop up again in the 1990s. Folks like Alex Jones, um, shortwave radio broadcasters, the militia movement, all pushed the idea that uh, the the UN and the Bilderberg Group and a whole bunch of others were secretly pulling the strings in Washington. It was actually a 
you know, a main motivator behind why uh, Timothy McVeigh committed the Oklahoma City bombing. He believed that American uh, sovereignty was um, at the cusp of being kind of destroyed altogether and that he had to act in order to kind of thwart these these globalist uh, figures. You know, it is a core belief behind the QAnon movement. It is a core idea behind a ton of people who support uh, Donald Trump, who, who tend to believe that there's, there's something kind of more nefarious afoot. So it's not bizarre to think think that this is, is this is a motivating factor for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think we have to sort of, you know, suspend our disbelief a bit and accept that this is something that, that actually could motivate a significant number of people. And, I, you know, and I, you, it's, it's an idea that you've seen expressed explicitly by James Botter, the guy who started the convoy, started the group called Canada Unity. Uh, he has also endorsed the QAnon movement outright. You know, he believes the World Economic Forum and its founder, Klaus Schwab, have um, some sort of incredibly uh, powerful influence over the Canadian government. Pat King, uh, one of the most influential organizers who brought it, who actually led this sort of convoy out of Alberta, same thing. He's also expressed the idea that our you know, political leaders are working to dilute the power of white Canadians in order to instill this globalist agenda. Um, Tamara Leach uh, helped organize an event for a guy named Tom Quiggin in Alberta, uh, who has expressed the idea that not only is the World Economic Forum responsible for this, they've made common cause with an Islamist conspiracy, and that uh, the the global Islamic movement is, um, is inherently extremist and violent, and that the Canadian Muslim community has, you know, deep infiltration by the, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and, and extremist elements. Um, uh, you know, the guy who produces his podcast, Benjamin Dichter, is one of the core organizers of the occupation of the convoy. So I don't mean to sound a conspiracy theorist myself. My point is that a ton of the people who organize this have a long history peddling this exact uh, conspiracy theory and others like it. Uh, they're the ones who you know have talked explicitly for many, many years about the idea that the world economic form in this globalist conspiracy is trying hard to destroy our democracy. And they understood all too well how a convoy to Ottawa could um, bring together all those disparate movements and could help really um, you know, put them on the map. Many of these people were involved in the 2019 convoy to Ottawa against carbon pricing um, that also had some extremist and, and conspiracy elements to it. Uh, so they know all too well how easy it is to, to get you know, uh, some rigs into Ottawa and kind of shut down the downtown core and the people who came along with them, you know, I've heard the idea that maybe the organizers are, are sort of out to lunch, but that the everyday folks who turned out in Ottawa were, you know, salt of the earth, bread and butter people who don't have, who don't share the same beliefs. But by and large, I saw this world economic uh, form theory pop up on signs. I overheard it in conversation. People said it explicitly to me. I saw it on um, occupiers and protesters, Facebook pages. They said it in interviews. It was on live streams that uh, talked to random people on the street. The idea, it was it was next to impossible to go into Ottawa for those three weeks and not hear someone, if not most people, talk about the World Economic Forum and the impending globalist takeover of this country. And it was all wrapped up in the idea that there needed to be some bigger explanation for the last two years. There needed to be some deeper um, you know, reason 
for why you know, people have died en masse, why people have been locked indoors, why businesses closed, why are, you know, in their eyes, our rights have been taken away for no reason. And, and, and the best answer people have come up with is this shadowy cabal based in Switzerland, uh, you know, run by a German guy. I'm speaking with investigative journalist, freelance journalist, Justin Ling, about uh, an article he wrote this weekend for the Toronto Star, looking at the impact, the lasting impact, uh, diving a bit deeper into the into the so-called Freedom Convoy and also looking at what the impact of that could be. And we'll get to that after this. We'll talk a bit about now that the convoy and the protests are done, the blockade is over. Um, several of the organizers are facing criminal charges. What is the legacy going to be? We'll be back with that. I'm back with freelance reporter Justin Ling. We're talking about an article he wrote for the Toronto Star over the weekend, really looking at, broadly looking at the lessons learned from the blockade in Ottawa and also where these movements, disparate as they were, that came together in Ottawa, where they may go now. One of the things you brought up that was interesting was just the security establishment um, took this very seriously. Uh, they, they, they had an idea of what was coming at least according to the people you spoke to. So, yeah, you know, I've seen reports from the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center or ITAC, which, you know, is is basically kind of a low-level terrorism um, intelligence agency. They produce reports often for uh, police officers, for first responders, for municipal police forces. And and in these reports, they warn specifically in mid-January that the folks coming to Ottawa, while they may have legitimate grievances, have elements within them that are motivated by extremists and that folks associated with this have expressed the idea that our leaders are treasonous and should be hanged. And they made clear that there was a strong possibility that at least some of the convoy would stick around in Ottawa uh, long enough for MPs to come back from winter break so that they can confront them directly because we've seen this in the past. Um, you know, looking at these reports and talking to some folks around the intelligence world who say that there were briefings happening about certain uh, particular groups that were present, uh, I think it became clear to me that, frankly, our intelligence service is still behind the ball um, when it comes to some of these movements, because certainly I think I could have probably written a more uh, you know, prescient uh, report for our, our government than, than the ones I was reading. But nevertheless, they still picked up on, on the real risk that was present in this convoy. And they were right in some respects. Some of the groups that were present um, you know, did were there for cause for concern. You know, while there was, um, you know, while the the protest in Ottawa, the occupation in Ottawa may have been um, uh, the cause for significant harassment of people in the city, may have made people feel unsafe, um, may have had low-level acts of violence. It overall did not pose a major, in the end, you know, it, it, it did not cause significant disruption. It did not lead to a significant attack. But you did see arrests made in Alberta and British Columbia, um, an instance where a, a number of people were arrested uh, with a, allegedly with a cache of weapons and a plan uh, to kill RCMP officers. And and a arrest made in BC where somebody showed up with a military vehicle and, and drove through a police barricade. I mean, you know, this is um, significant acts or alleged acts or planned acts of, of domestic terrorism. And, 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 and frankly, I, I still don't think we've reckoned with that. I think we've sort of moved on from the occupation and gone, well, that could have gone worse. And now we're sort of forging ahead. But I, I, I really think it's time to start genuinely worrying about what some of this movement means for the country. Now, the sort of 
good news, if I can call it that, of movements like this, whether it's QAnon, whether it's the folks who believe that the World Economic Forum is, is you know, is, is a threat to our democracy or other, um, you know, similar kind of fifth column style movements, the vast majority of people are going to be peaceful. The vast majority of people may be misinformed, maybe may be prone to conspiracy thinking, but they, they're genuine and they're earnest in their beliefs. And, and, and frankly, I, I think we would do well not to demonize all of them because um, I, I, I think these people by and large, there's some big exceptions, but by and large are not homophobic. They're not, they're not sexist. They're not racist. Um, you know, it is a movement that does have sort of diversity within it. And they, they are genuinely hopeful that they can prevent, you know, socialism or tyranny or autocracy or whatever um, from coming to this country and from ruining our way of life. And, and they may be misinformed, like I said, but they're still doing so earnestly. But there is a contingent amongst them who think that violence is necessary to achieve those ends. There is a contingent amongst them who are also members of other far-right and extremist movements that are homophobic and racist and sexist and so on. Um, and there are people amongst this movement who are using it for their own ends, who realize that these people have been alienated from the media and from government and institutions and, and modern life in a big way, and who see them as a vehicle for their own ends, who think they can recruit these people for their own ends. And and. All of those things pose a serious um, national security threat. Um, you know, we, we forget all too soon that it was just last year that a guy who, again, inspired by QAnon, inspired by this World Economic Forum conspiracy theory, drove to the front gates of, uh, of Rideau Hall with a plan to potentially kill the prime minister. You know, we forget that there have been you know, serious um, planned attacks throughout North America, or in some cases, successful ones, where people have been motivated by this sort of anti-government delusion. Um, so we, we we have to stop sort of um, brushing this off and hoping things get better. This is a problem that's not going away. You actually heard the prime minister's national security advisor uh, in the last few weeks say exactly that. This is a problem that is here to stay, and it's time we start wrestling with it. Justin Ling, thank you so much for your insight and great article. Thank you for, uh, for diving into it. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a big week for NATO leaders, for G7 leaders. The prime minister is heading to Brussels to meet with again with other NATO leaders and to attend a G7 heads of state and government meeting to discuss Ukraine. Justin Trudeau will also address the European Parliament this week. So lots on the plate. Today, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said that Canada will levy further sanctions against individuals and companies in Russia. She also said the war in Ukraine poses a, quote, existential question to Western democracies, democracies such as ours. And Julie says that's why Canada will continue to put economic pressure on Vladimir Putin. We need to make sure that Ukrainians win this war. Vladimir Putin cannot prevail. This is a question that is existential to the West and to the world's stability. It comes on the heels of another deadly weekend in Ukraine, with civilians once again the target for Russian attacks. The Black Sea port city of Mariupol, which we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks, remains under siege nearly, well, more than four weeks now. Today, searchers continue to look for people trapped in the rubble of yet another bombed-out building that was being used for people to shelter from the constant bombardment. In that town of as many as 400,000 people at one point, many are still trapped, running short of all basic supplies, such as food and water, medicine, and getting help to them because humanitarian corridors have not been obeyed by Russia. They have not allowed people to enter or leave. Well, getting help to them is proving extremely difficult. Here's UNICEF's James Elder. It's about getting medical supplies, be it rest 
respirators, be it, you know, midwifery kits, Amy. Mums are having babies in bunkers, and it's getting that to those cities that are really under siege. Of course, today when Russia demanded that Mariupol surrender, the answer was no. European Union's policy chief calls what's happening in that city a war crime. Meantime, yesterday, there was an absolutely devastating attack on a large shopping center just outside of downtown Kiev on Sunday. It killed at least eight people, wrecked nearby buildings. It left smoking piles of rubble, twisted wreckage of burned out cars spread over several hundred meters. So inside Ukraine tonight, people witnessing civilians being attacked indiscriminately expect something from this meeting this week, this NATO meeting, this G7 meeting. They expect leaders such as Justin Trudeau to do more. Joining me now from Kyiv, again under curfew tonight, is Oleksandra Matviachuk, a human rights lawyer and the head there of the Center for Civil Liberties. Thank you for being here tonight. Hello. It's been, I mean, from those of us watching from afar, when we saw the, the destruction of the, of the shopping center yesterday, the attacks on residential buildings of the last week, it feels like something has changed in the way that Russia is is attacking civilians. And I guess as, as a head of the Center for Civil Liberties, how are you witnessing that over the last while? When the war started, we restored our initiative, Euromaidan SOS, and brought up several hundreds of volunteers in order to do all necessity work in this moment. And one of our direction of work is documenting war crimes. So I can clearly state that, unfortunately, with the first day of the war, Russia used war crimes as a tool of conducting this war. And such kind of events and cases when Russia's troops uh, deliberately shelling on residential buildings, on schools, on kindergarten, on shopping mall is uh, very widespread. We have seen, I think, I mean, we've certainly seen President Zelensky. We've seen, I spoke to uh, Dmitry Guerin from Mariupol the other day. Certainly the idea is that they're now trying to lay siege to cities and, and, shorten the supply of food, things that people need to live? Uh, they tried to circle Kiev for, for maybe more than one week and a half, but they failed. And I hope that they will not succeed in this attempt. Uh, but yes, they, they, they have this course to isolate the cities in order to stop local resistance. We see uh, the bright example of Mariupol, uh, which for 26 days are levering with the ground. Uh, like uh, then we have from official sources information that 19% of buildings are shelling and destroyed in the city. So the city has been almost completely, completely destroyed, I understand. Um, what else are you hearing from different people around the country right now compared to what we were talking about a week and a half ago? It has been nearly a month now. It's very hard to live under those conditions for, for weeks and weeks on end. How much, how much more difficult is it getting for people in different cities around the country who found themselves uh, under siege? Like, uh, if you ask uh, how how to be in war, I, I can answer that it's very awful. Yeah. Because uh, it's not something which uh, you, you can to prepare for if you are ordinary people and uh, and uh, not fall in love in military. And uh, you had uh, your ordinary life, uh, you had uh, your families, you have uh, your job, but now everything is ruins. And... Uh, now we have uh, not only uh, separate, uh, separated uh, families and uh, destroy, destroyed buildings, 
uh, we have uh, injured people, we have uh, killed people, we have people uh, who started to, to do the things which they never expected from themselves to start, like uh, join to territorial defense or train with the gangs or uh, make some medical assistance, etc. Uh, but uh, I must admit that um, I always say that I never wish any nation to go such, through such kind of time and such uh, challenges, but uh, it uh, has also another effect. Uh, we have a huge wave of solidarity among the nations and uh, people help each other and uh, protect each other and take care about each other. and. Uh, it uh, looks like ordinary people uh, who uh, do unordinary things. And uh, it shows us that uh, these dramatic times provide a chance uh, for us to be better than we are. And I looked at your, I was obviously looking at what you put up on social media. I was struck by the, you mentioned at one point that your book club was supposed to meet on February 27th. And I was trying to picture just how much things had changed in your life, even though you were always active, um, just how difficult it must be and how challenging it must be to continue to do your work day in, day out as this is happening around you. I try not to focus on my own emotions <laughs> right. because I need, I need to, to do my work and uh, it's like a survival model. Um, we are now concentrated on human pains and we need to uh, like to leave some energy <laughs> so if we will start to, to think and to reflect about our previous life it can provoke not uh, good results so we leave everything for further when the war will finish then we will start reflecting about everything which we go through you, um, what is now needed? Uh, we've talked a lot about the need for for to protect the skies. Is that still? And you posted a picture of yourself with Joe Biden today, back in two thousand and fourteen, when, as vice president, he was in charge of the Ukraine file. Um, we're still waiting. For, we, but we, you and I, spoke about this two and a half weeks ago, and you're still waiting for proper defenses. Yes, and this is a huge problem because we have no time. Uh, all, all these debates, all this wasting time resulted in numerous civilian deaths. And every every day, every night, we have a new uh, casualties among civilians, a new uh, broken residential buildings, a new uh, numbers of uh, killed and injured people, and a new ruined human lives. And we ask for first time to uh, close the sky uh, and then we was told that it's impossible. Uh, and, okay, and we say, okay, but please provide us alternative. We will close the sky by our own efforts. Uh, we need a weapons in order to, to do it. Uh, we need uh, large distance um, weapons, uh, like air, uh, air, airplane, fighter planes, jets, uh, uh, air defense system. I'm not a military expert, I'm human rights lawyer, but I understand the difference between drone and between fighter planes. It's a huge yeah. difference. Yes. Without it, though, I think what we started to witness is that it's very, under these cities where they can't get out, we, we heard today about another humanitarian corridor being fired, people in a humanitarian corridor being fired on. You know, 
what's been happening feels like the targeting of civilians has become the point of Russia's war. Russia's not fighting soldiers. They're literally fighting the innocent people of Ukraine, or at least they're, they're attacking the innocent people of Ukraine. The tactics of Russian troops. Uh, before this war started, the world thinks that Russia is the second powerful army in the world. But now we see that it's not true that uh, Russia uh, army couldn't fight honestly. And that's why they need to uh, kill in civilians in order to stop local resistance. It's because also they become victims of Russian propaganda by themselves. They were sure that when they appeared in Ukrainian territory, they will face only with Ukrainian army. And they was non-prepared that they have to face with the whole Ukrainian people. And now they started physically uh, liquidation of peaceful towns, cities, and settlements, isolate them uh, to put uh, people in, um, to, to be in basement for days without food, water, medical care, electricity, only in order to stop local resistance. Because we see in Kherson, in Melitopol, in Berdyansk, in other cities which is under Russian occupation, people unarmed go to the central square with Ukrainian flags and face-to-face to to Russian soldiers and say them, go away. I'm speaking with Alexandra Matvichuk, a human rights lawyer in Kyiv, head of the Center for Civil Liberties. When we come back, a bit more about what more the West can do, what more allies can now do, must do, to help better protect Ukrainian civilians. That's next. I'm back with Alexandra Matvichuk, a human rights lawyer, head of the Center for Civil Liberties. She's speaking to me tonight from Kyiv. Alexander, when we look at the, how the situation has progressed, I, I think a lot of people, my sense is a lot of people outside of Ukraine had no, didn't prepare for anything that was going to last for a month or longer. What else needs to be done now from countries like Canada, countries like the United States, to better or at least continue to help um, people on the ground in Ukraine? I understand that a lot of supplies are not getting in as fast as they should be, or at least as fast as they are needed. Putin thought that the West will not be able to unite and uh, to stand uh, together uh, uh, with Ukraine. And uh, it's very important for Canada to unite all Western democracies uh, with with one consolidated strategy. I think this is something which Putin is afraid uh, because... uh, if authoritarian regimes cooperate with each other, as we see on examples of Russia and Belarus, so it's impossible, um, and there is no excuse for Western democracies uh, to to cooperate together in order to 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 help Ukraine. And here we have uh, problems uh, with uh, proactive actions. Uh, if we go to, into details, for example, of um, impose sanctions and take a sanction list. There is a sanction list uh, uh, of uh, Russian oligarchs and top officials made by USA, uh, sanction list made by Great Britain, and sanction list made by EU. And when we compare the sanctions list, we will understand that some people are missing, uh, some people not include. Uh, so it's it's different sanctions list. And even in this small detail, there is no unity. Uh, gonna... Also, go ahead. Sorry. This, also, if we go into details uh, about a ban of SWIFT, uh, we, uh, we are uh, looking to, uh, from the West, 
that all Russian banks were banned from SWIFT. But then, because they have no unity between Western democracies, only several Russian banks were banned from SWIFT, and among them, the, it was there is no Sberbank, which is the biggest bank of Ukraine. So once again, we need immediate proactive actions, and we need unity uh, between democracies and between countries who declare that human rights, rule of law, and democracy is their values. What's interesting, Alexandra, is that here everyone talks about how unified everybody is, how unified the US, the EU, Canada, UK are. But from where you're sitting, you don't see that unity. You're not seeing the kind of unity you want to see. Uh, it's understandable in our position because we try to survive and we see the weak point. On another side, I'm we very inspiring the wave of solidarity throughout the world. We really feel this wave of solidarity. We're very grateful, but we are dying. And maybe that's why we have a right to ask, to be more proactive, to be more convincing, uh, to be more united, uh, to help us to stand in this battle. Because it's not only bat a battle about our country, or about our people, it's a battle about freedom. And now we only far front of this battle. And I know this for sure because I have studied Russia for years and we closely work with our colleagues from Russia, Russian human rights defenders. And I remember that when earlier I asked them uh, how we can help you because they faced with a lot of persecutions, with, uh, uh, with repression legislation, with prohibition of their work, et cetera, et cetera including disinformation campaigns and, uh, and uh, like uh, bullying in the Russian media, they always answer, if you want to help us, please be successful. And it means that when they succeed in a model of democratic transformation, it will have a huge impact to Russia itself. In this regard, Ukraine is a key to Russia. As a last question for you, Alexander, I know it's spring in Kiev. I know it's starting to get warmer. The flowers are coming out. Do you still feel, do you feel a sense of hope for the future still? Um, frankly speaking, I, I'm a human, I'm being, I'm ordinary woman. And um, like my mood also changed from, from day to day, from hours to hours. Because even if I'm professional human rights defenders, it's very hard to stand indifferent when you started to uh, get know some information from what's going on in occupied cities, what's going on in humanitarian corridors, loses photos, videos. So frankly speaking, sometimes for me, it's very hard emotionally. But I know for sure that Ukraine will resist and Putin sooner or later will lose. Like, it's a history. <laughs> history will place against Putin. He couldn't return Ukraine to the past. Alexander Matyachuk, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.